ago, the Washington Post unearthed a picture from 1957 in which a group of white students were trying to block six black students from entering a high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. Among the group of white students was Jerry Jones, the owner and general manager of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I've listened to interviews with Jerry Jones over the course of the last week in which he has been asked about this picture. He makes the point that he was 15 years old when this picture was taken. Uh, he says that the only reason he was there was that he was curious about what was happening and that he was, uh, the only thing going through his mind was that he was afraid he was going to get into trouble with his high school football coach uh, for being there. Now, you might have any number of thoughts about the article itself, the picture, Jerry Jones, or his responses to the questions about the picture, but uh, the reason I bring it up is that the whole thing made me think, if I were in uh, that situation, if I were Jerry Jones in that situation, uh, how would I respond to that question that reporters were asking Jerry Jones? This isn't intended to be critical of his response. It's just sort of like, how would I respond to that? And after thinking about it for a while, I came to the conclusion that I, that I, that I would say something like this. Yes, uh, that, that was me in the picture. And when I look at that picture, uh, it makes me very, very sad. Because my self-righteousness, uh, along with the culture that I was raised in, justified my belief that white people were superior to black people. And I wish that even at the age of 15, I would have understood that all people are created equal in the image of God. And I, I wish that even at 15, I would have had the courage to stand with black students rather than white students. And I wasn't that kind of person back then. But by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, I am that kind of person today. Now, let's face it, it's always easier to think of a response when you have a lot of time and when, a, uh, you, know, when you have more time than, than, than Jerry Jones had at the time and when a microphone or a camera isn't being shoved in your face. And then, of course, there's this. It's so much easier for me to say that I am that kind of person than it is to be that kind of person and follow through when the threat of violence is in the air or if it happened today you know, when I might lose my job or uh, the social circle that I run in might turn on me or my reputation might be ruined. Saying I would do something and doing something are so very different, aren't they? Talk is cheap. And I bring this up because we're in a series on the book of James called Authentic Christianity. And when we last left James, he was talking about this very thing. The fact that talk is cheap and that there's a big difference between saying what you believe and doing what you believe. And I want to come back and look at that again today for just a few moments, and then we'll advance some in the passage too. If you have a Bible, find the book of James chapter 1. And uh, while you're turning, I just want to say that you may remember that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he's a pastor. He's the pastor of the most influential church in the known world at the time. Uh, the church in Jerusalem. He's writing to Jewish believers there. Uh, they're believers in Christ. They're suffering persecution for the very thing that you and I take for granted this morning, which is the ability to sit and to worship Jesus Christ. That's why they were suffering. 
Now, as I said, I want to return to something that James said that we looked at prior to Thanksgiving. If you would, just look at the last part of verse 21, and we'll read uh, from there. Uh, James says, Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Stop, stop there for just a moment. I don't know if you can see it, uh, but James is putting his finger on one of the most significant causes for the distortions that are present in your life today. Uh, distortions in your marriage, distortions in your family, Distortions in all of your relationships, distortion, distortions in your attachments, like the things that you hold too tight to, distortions in your view of yourself. Uh, did you see it there? Did you see it there? Do not merely listen to the word, he says, and so deceive yourself. And see, what he's talking about here is the capacity that we have as humans for self-deception. The capacity for self-deception. I have it, you have it, your kids have it, your parents have it, we all have it. Uh, the capacity for self-deception. And what a perfect illustration James uses. He says, it's like a person who looks in the mirror and then forgets uh, what he looks like. You ever done that? Uh, a few years ago, Amy told me that I needed some new shirts. She does all of my shopping and, you know, like choosing clothes and dress. She dresses me, essentially. Um, so she told me I needed some new shirts, and I hate, to shop. I hate to shop, even online. I just hate to shop. And so Amy went out online and picked out some shirts for me, and, and she put them in the, uh, what, do you, what do you call that? Like a, is it a basket? She put it in a, ba a basket online? Is that what you call it? Cart. cart, that's what you call it. Put it in a cart online. And um, she kept... She kept bugging me to, to look at the shirts, and I kept putting it off for as long as I could. And uh, finally, you know, she grabbed me, and we sat down and looked at the shirts that she had picked out, and I said, okay, that's fine. And as far as I was concerned, I'm done shopping. But um, uh, I, you know, I kind of walked away at that point. But you have to specify nowadays the cut of the shirt you want. You know, shirts used to be all basically cut the same way, but now it's so much more complicated. And as Amy fills out the information for the order, she asks me from across the room, uh, what, what cut do you want? And I said, you know, dismissively, I, I don't know, whatever the slimmest cut is. And uh, in Amy's defense, she, she responded very, very sweetly. She, she said, very sweetly, she said, are you sure about that? And now I'm offended about this, right? Uh, and I said, yes, I'm sure. Uh, now, this would have been uh, perfectly appropriate to order the slimmest cut of shirts if I were still in my 20s. But when I look in the mirror, I see a man on the other side of, well, let's say 40. I'm not saying how far on the other side of 40, but we'll just say on the other side of 40. And when the shirts arrived, uh, I tried them on, and I kid you not, uh, it felt like I was wearing a straight jacket. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. I started seeing spots in front of my eyes. I looked, and I felt absolutely ridiculous. Amy tried not to laugh, but she did laugh. She couldn't help herself, but she was very gracious, even about the laughing. The thought that at my age, I could wear the slimmest cut of shirt possible was a classic case 
of a man who forgot what he saw in the mirror. A man way too old to wear that kind of shirt. It was very humbling, by the way, to have to box them up and then take them back to the place that we take them to to mail it off. It was like a walk of shame going back up there uh, with those shirts. Self-deception is always humiliating when you're finally forced to face the reality of yourself. It's always humbling. The late author Joan Didion once wrote, most of our platitudes, notwithstanding, self-deception remains the most difficult deception. The tricks that work on others count for nothing in that very well-lit back alley where one keeps assignations with oneself. No winning smiles will do here. No prettily drawn lists of good intentions. One shuffles flashily but in vain through one's marked cards. The kindness done for the wrong reason. The apparent triumph which involved no real effort or the seemingly heroic act into which one had been shamed. She's talking about self-deception. You can fool other people but you can't fool yourself. Well, you can fool yourself, actually. You try to fool yourself. And this is what James is talking about. You see, the reason that, that self-deception is a thing is that you and I are naturally allergic to the truth. It's incredibly easy to be self-deceived into thinking that you're something that you're not. In fact, I can almost guarantee you right now that the sin that is, the, that is most distorting your life is the one that you can't see or that you refuse to see. Like others have pointed it out to you, but you just will not hear it, you won't look at it, you won't see it. Do you know why? Because you're allergic to the truth. And so James is saying it's, it's easy to listen to the word and deceive yourself into believing uh, that you are changing. By the way, when he talks about uh, listening to the word, humbly accepting the word, what is, it, what is the word that he keeps talking about? Well, he's talking about the gospel. You know the gospel. The gospel that says that you are a deeply loved moral failure. That gospel. The gospel that says that you are a person for whom Christ died and rose again so that he could transform you. That's the point of the gospel. I think we said this a couple of weeks ago, that, that once you've believed the gospel, life isn't, the rest of your life isn't just a waiting room for heaven. God saved you to change you and send you into the world as a witness for him. That's the message of James, you see. What James says, this is, this is the overall message of the book of James. Authentic faith in Christ results in heroic living. Uh, authentic faith in Christ results in heroic living. James is saying that because we're allergic to the truth about ourselves, it's possible to listen to the word and deceive yourself into thinking that you're being transformed when you're not. That's the capacity we have for self-deception. You know, this book, the Bible, we've said before that it's all about Christ, and that's true. It's also a book about God's vision for your life as Christ lives through you. It's an incredible book. It's an incredible vision that God has for you. But listen to me on this. You know you're hearing the gospel. You know that you're really hearing the word when you're humbled into the ground by its demands. 
But at the same time, you're so overwhelmed by Christ's love for you and his vision for your life that you find yourself wanting to change. You want to start doing what you're hearing. That's how you know when you're really hearing the gospel. But see, we have this capacity for self-deception. James gives us an example uh, in verse 26 of a person who is self-deceived. Buckle your seatbelts, man, because this is going to get very personal. Uh, look, at, look at the verse, verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious, stop there for just a moment. Uh, the Greek word for religious there is the word threskos, and it refers to uh, outward religious practices. So it's like, it's like people who are religious on the outside, but there's not really anything happening on the inside. It's fascinating because this word shows up four times in the New Testament, and two of them are here in verses 26 and 27. The point is, in this word, that God isn't interested in religious ritual. He's not about making religious people. In other words, you go to church, you join a small group, you take communion, uh, you get baptized, you go to confession, you cross yourself, whatever it is that you do. It's fair to say that he could care less about that as an end. What he cares about are transformed lives. Now read on. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues uh, deceive themselves. We're talking about self-deception, see again here. And their religion, all of that outward stuff, it's, it's worthless. Make a note of this. Some of the worst things we do, we do with our speech, not just, not just oral speech, but also written, you know, texts, emails, social media, all of that stuff. Some of the worst things we do, we do with our speech. And all of the outward observances, excuse me, observances of religion are worthless if it isn't changing how you use your tongue. Now, why, why does James focus on the tongue here? Well, remember, uh, he's speaking to people who are hurting and who are suffering. And when you're hurt, you know this, when you're hurting, when you're suffering... There's a tendency to want to lash out at someone, uh, to blame someone else. Hurt people hurt people. You know the saying, right? And so think with me for just a moment about how the tongue can damage people's, uh, dam damage people's lives. Like, for instance, gossip. Gossip, the, the kind that may or may not be true, but you spread because you want to hurt someone else. Slander. Uh, the word slander literally means ripping off flesh. And when it's applied to speech, it means a put down, you're intentionally hurting another person by what you say about them. Uh, lies, uh, an exaggeration. Well, lies and exaggeration have, have, have really damaged people's, other people's character, reputation over time. Grumbling and complaining. This usually happens in the context of um, organizations, churches. Uh, this is what the people of Israel did when they were wandering in the wilderness. They grumbled and complained about their leader, Moses. They assumed that his motives were the worst. They grumbled and complained about God. 
Uh, they said that he had taken them out in the desert just to let them die, you know, grumbling and complaining, assuming the worst. It's the position of pessimism, the assumption of the worst possible motives, and the expression of that assumption as fact without even uh, exploring with the person you are grumbling about or inquiring and asking about their motives. Another one is harsh criticism. Harsh criticism. And some of you have been victims of very, very harsh criticism by someone that you love, admire, respect. Uh, some of you may remember that back in the mid-1990s, uh, a woman author by the name of Amy Tan wrote a book, um, eventually became an award-winning film called The Joy Luck Club. And uh, in the book, in the film, one little girl has the capacity, in her own words, to, to see the secrets of a chessboard. And this special gift enables her to become a national chess champion by the age of eight years old. Her only liability is that her mother is extremely driven and is both envious of her daughter's gifts as well as selfishly uses them to fulfill her, uh, uh, her own ambitions for wealth and power. At one point, the little, little girl dares to speak back to her mother. And the, woman, uh, the mother responds uh, first by giving an icy, uh, silent treatment. And then she says to her daughter, you are nothing. You are nothing at all. And uh, I can imagine that some of you have heard those kinds of things from parents. This is how the little girl describes uh, the effect that it had on her. She said, what she said to me was like a curse. This power I had, this belief in what I'd been given, I could actually feel it draining away. I could feel myself becoming so ordinary and all the secrets that I once saw on the chessboard, I couldn't see anymore. All I could see were my mistakes and my weaknesses. And the best part of me disappeared. Hmm. See, that's the, that's the destructive power of the tongue, specifically harsh criticism. James is saying here, if you aren't convicted by your words, if you don't see the connection between the gospel and the way you speak, you are self-deceived. And you are completely missing the point of the gospel. There's this moment, some of you may remember this, there's this moment near the end of Jesus' life when he's dragged before the religious leaders of Israel. And in their wicked use of their tongues, they falsely accuse Jesus of every awful thing that they could accuse him of. And head religious leader, a man by the name of Caiaphas, asks him, essentially, what do you have to say for yourself? He asks Jesus, what do you have to say for yourself? And the, and the text says, uh, Jesus said nothing. And I thought, what unbelievable, heroic restraint. To be falsely accused and not feel the need to even defend yourself because in part you know it's no use. Or at least to lash out in anger 
and say hurtful things uh, to the others that are accusing you. What unbelievably heroic restraint. And see, this is what this is what Christ wants to do in you. If you've been born again, if you've accepted Christ as your, as your Savior, what He wants to do, he's given, he's given you by installing on the hard drive of your life, of your soul, He's installed His life and His own heroic restraint of His tongue in your life. And He wants that to become increasingly displayed over time. James says, listen, if you don't get the connection between the gospel and the way you use your words, the things you say, all of the outward stuff that you do, um, it's just meaningless. You're living in self-deception that you're living this heroic life that you've been called to live. And then James moves uh, from a person who is self-deceived to a person who really gets the gospel. Look at, look at verse 27. Uh, religion uh, that God our Father accepts. Remember, he just said that, he said that, that, that you know, if, if you think of yourself as being religious, but you can't control your tongue, then it's all worthless. Now he, now he comes and he says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted uh, by the world, by, by the world and its values. Make a note of this somewhere. People who have been authentically changed by the gospel are people who care for the most vulnerable and marginalized members of society. Uh, people who have been authentically changed by the gospel are people who care for the most vulnerable and marginalized members of society. In James' day, the most vulnerable and marginalized members of society included widows and orphans. And that word, look after, when he says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. That word, look after, means to advocate for them, to do justice for them. It doesn't just mean to give them a handout, although sometimes... Uh, that's part of looking after them, but it means more than that. It means to do justice, to advocate for them. Perhaps uh, that would mean that if I were alive in 1957 and attending a high school in Little Rock, Arkansas, perhaps that would mean that I would stand with the six black students being terrorized by dozens of white students, many of whom perhaps would have been my friends despite the repercussions of my life. That's what James is calling us to. The Old Testament is filled with passages about how God's people were to serve the vulnerable and the marginalized. They were to demonstrate the generosity and goodness of God to others. They were to work uh, for justice. Why? Well, because God is just. I want you to listen to this. See if this doesn't sound very consistent with what James is saying here. In the book of Isaiah, God is rebuking his people for their external religion. Like for all the, you know, they're going through all the motions, they're making all the sacrifices, they're doing, you know, blah, 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 and they're doing everything that they're supposed to do religiously. But watch what he says. He says, wash yourself, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, like the orphan, plead 
the widow's cause. In other words, stop with all the religious falderall and do something heroic in my name for the vulnerable and the marginalized of society. And you know, from the Old Testament until now, one of the hallmarks of God's people is that they actively pursue justice and dismantle oppression, which um, some of which happens on a church level collectively, some of which happens on an individual level. As the people of God, we get to be a part of God's work in the world. Somebody, uh, somebody sent me something recently, and uh, they were upset at me, and they, they were critical, and they said, what are we doing, you know, what are we doing to live out the mission of the church that's on the wall? And I didn't say this to them. They're not here, by the way. Uh, I didn't say this to them, but, but what I what I wanted to text uh, back, but I was trying to apply this passage, was we're, we're probably doing about as well as you're doing individually, carrying out the mission of the church. Right? But there are things as a church that we can do to ease the burden of our neighbors and, and to work to dismantle systems that put burdens on their backs in the first place. We can't meet every need. We can't solve every problem as a church. We can't take on every cause. But there are a couple of things that I've mentioned before that I would love for us to be able to do. And these are things that we have included in our budget. And you're giving um, our ability to meet our budget. You know, well, that... What we want to do depends on that kind of thing. One of the things I've mentioned before is that, uh, you've heard me say this before, some of you, I, I would love for us to have an emergency disaster response team. When some natural disaster hits, somewhere geographically accessible to us, like, 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 like Florida, you know, a month or two ago, uh, I'd love to have a team of people who respond. Like perhaps we have a truck full of blankets and water and food and cell phones and tarps and shovels and whatever else uh, that people need and we have a group of people who just respond and they, they go down there and they, they, they take that stuff and they do whatever they can to serve people um, in that kind of situation. I'd love for us to be able to do that. Another thing that I dream of, I've been laughed at every time I bring this up, uh, but I'd love for us to be able to build like a Habitat for Humanity house out here in our parking lot uh, that, that, you know, our people build and then we deliver it to wherever it needs to be delivered. And then when we're done, we start over and we do it again. Love to be able to do that kind of thing. Also like to find a way to meet needs beyond the places that are geographically acceptable, uh, excuse me, ac accessible to us. Like, what are the physical needs of people, for instance, in Ukraine right now? Uh, did you know that there's a devastating drought in East Africa in a place called Turkana? Many families in Turkana have lost all of their livestock because of this drought, and milk production has dropped uh, to zero, and they're in desperate need of food and water and all sorts of things. And those are just a couple of examples uh, by the way, of places that are geographically inaccessible, but we could still help. To be quite honest with you, I can think of more ways that we could help uh, people and 
Our staff can think of more ways that we can help people, more things that we can do than probably than you have money to give, quite frankly. But James is saying, look, authentic faith in Christ results in heroic living. People who are concerned about the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor, people who advocate for them, who seek justice for them, who, who come to their need, who, who stand with them. It's heroic living. Well, I want to close with these two quick thoughts. First, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that God would care so deeply about the vulnerable, the poor. <laughs> That's what you were. When you were still lost in your sins, poor in good works, you had nothing that you could bring before God to make you worthy. God in his great love and grace sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for you because you couldn't do anything to earn his favor. It makes perfect sense that God cares about vulnerable poor people, because that's what, that's what you were before God. That's what I am before God. Second, if you feel humbled to your knees this morning as you think about your own capacity for self-deception, about how you use your tongue, whether or not you care enough about the marginalized, the vulnerable, the, vulnerable, the, the poor, well, frankly, good. That's, that's healthy to be humbled to your knees about that. Join the crowd. I'm humbled. I've had, I've had to live with this for a whole week. All you have to live with it is, you know, a few minutes here on Sunday morning. I've had to live with it for a whole week. So yes, I feel humbled to my knees about it. But you also need to feel lifted up to the sky at the news that out of love, Christ died for self-deceived moral failures like you and me who use our tongues improperly and who don't care enough about the poor and the marginalized. He still loves us. He, he loves us so much he died for us. And, he and, 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 and if you believed upon him, he has a vision for your life that is absolutely positively heroic. And not only does he have a vision for that, but he has equipped you for it by installing his life on the hard drive of your heart. I, I, I told you this a, a few weeks ago. I think I've repeated a, a few different times that, that in another church that I used to pastor years ago, we used to say every week, Christ died for me to give his life to me, See, installing it on the hard drive in my life, to live his life through me, his love for the poor, his restraint of the tongue, his heroic life. That's the gospel. Christ died for you to give his life to you, to live his life through you, because in and of yourself, you can't. That's the story. Would you bow with me for prayer? A passage like this is incredibly humbling, Lord. I find myself uh, humbled to my knees by it. <laughs> uh, and yet, at the same time, Lord, uh, so unbelievably, unbelievably thrilled that you love an imperfect man like me and that you have a vision for my life that you are working to carry out. 
a heroic life. And Lord, that's true for every person in this room. I pray, Lord, that you would make us as a church a a kind of place that is genuinely transforming lives. And um, a church that cares about the poor and the, the vulnerable because you care about that. Lord, if there are people here today who've never understood that they have this capacity for self-deception and so they too are sinners and they need a Savior, I pray that you would bring them today through the truth of your word here to a place that they bow their knees at the foot of the cross and that they would say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. Change me. Change me. I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.